Um, so welcome to the Sporting History Podcast, brought to you by the British Society of Sports History in association with the Institute of Historical Research. And this week I'm talking to my fellow podcast host, Connor Heffernan. Hi, Connor. Hi, Jeff. How are you? Yeah, good. And Dr. Connor Heffernan is Assistant Professor of Physical Culture and Sports Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. These titles seem to get longer and longer every time I interview somebody. <laughs> <laughs> uh, his research interest is late 19th and early 20th century body cultures in Great Britain and the United States. Outside of academia, Connor, Connor also runs the Physical Culture Study, a website dedicated to the history of health and fitness. And I'll put a link to that um, on the podcast details. And he also provides content for several fitness outlets. Uh, Connor, a lot of work, a lot of your work focuses on the history of physical culture. And for the unin uninitiated, uh, can you explain what physical culture is? Yeah, sure. So there's the like academic definition, which I give in papers and in uh, dissertations. Then there's the definition I have to give to my friends down the pub. <laughs> so I'll start with the smart one and then bring it down to kind of the lowest common denominator. Um, the best definition for physical culture is those activities in which the development of the body is the primary purpose. So exercising for the sake of exercising the body. So that's, you know, keep fit exercise, bodybuilding, going to the gym. So that's my like very highbrow understanding. When I teach it to students, when I explain to my friends what it is, I say the desire to look better naked is effectively, <laughs> what, I it's, it's effectively what I study. Um, and that means, you know, dieting, exercising. It's different from sport because you're not doing it for like gold medals, winning races. You're doing it to look better naked. Yeah, oh, that's very good. That's a very good way of uh, way of explaining it. And uh, you've you've just published an article uh, for Playing Pasts um, on physical culture in Ireland from the Union. So I think from like the late nineteenth century through to the Irish Free State and just up to the Second World War. Can you tell me what's distinctive about the development of physical culture in Ireland at that time? Yeah, so I think what's interesting about Ireland and our Irish physical culture is it's largely like an ersatz mongrel version of what's happening in Great Britain. Mm. So there's several really excellent studies on physical culture in Great Britain. And really what's happening in Ireland is like a pale imitation of what's happening in Britain. So up until Irish independence in 1921, really we see that Ireland is wholly dependent on Britain for information, for training materials, equipment, inspiration, motivation, all of that is coming from Great Britain. After independence, we see the Irish Free State try and take ownership of its own physical culture, try and Gaelicize it, make it inherently Irish. And the thing which makes Ireland such an interesting case study is, obviously Northern Ireland is still part of the Union. So on the same island, we have two different states enacting radically different forms of physical culture, both institutionally, the governments are both trying to do different things, but also recreationally. People in Northern Ireland have much stronger links to Great Britain and British physical culture, whereas those in the South, are large, or the Irish Free State, are largely left to their own devices. So I think what interests me about physical culture in Ireland is it's very similar to what's been studied in Britain, France, and Germany, for example. But because the partition of Ireland occurs so early on, we start to see two states going radically different um, directions. Yeah, and does the does the role of the church in um, in the Irish Free State have a have an impact on development of physical culture and ideas around modesty and things like this? 
In, initially, no. Um, initially, the church is very supportive of physical culture in a kind of muscular Christian mm. way. So from the late 1890s, really until Irish independence, the church tends to be a very strong supporter of physical culture, especially among the working class, because obviously the working class need to be reformed in Ireland, and this will make them strong Christians and better Christians. It's only in the 1920s and 30s, in the free state predominantly, where the church starts to take a very authoritarian approach to physical culture. So physical culture magazines are banned in the free state in the late 1920s, early 1930s, because they contain articles on nudism, mm. or they promote kind of, you know, improving your sexual vigor. And this isn't just an issue directed towards men. When the Women's League of Health and Beauty comes to Irish, the Irish Free State in 1934, they have to change their name to the League of Health because the Women's League of Health and Beauty is seen as too provocative for female <laughs> exercise. They have to uh, change their dress. So the Women's League wears a tunic and a skirt, or tunic and shorts. In the Irish Free State, they had to wear a tunic, shirt, and, and shorts because, again, this was an issue of female modesty. So it's interesting. Initially, the church is very supportive of physical culture, but as the church's kind of power grows within the free state, it starts to restrict and restrain the kinds of physical culture that can emerge within the free state. And um, some of the work that I've done uh, to do with rugby very much looks at um, differing conceptions of what it means to be an Irishman uh, mm. in, in a sporting context. So I was writing particularly about a player called Basil McClear, who was kind of promoted as an ideal Irishman in the 1900s. Um, and there's a real... Um, there's a real battle between nationalists and unionists, isn't there, for, for mm. uh, around the Irish body in the 1900s? Um, did, is this played out in physical culture as well? Yeah, so before we started recording, we were talking about the parallels really between kind of sport and physical culture in Ireland. It's never, I think, as pronounced because there's not a competitive element per se to physical culture. But you start to get Sinn Féin magazine has wonderful articles from the early 1900s about effeminate Englishmen and you know strong Irishmen are those individuals who are strong in body because that make you strong in mind and there is a tinge of like soft eugenics and social Darwinism mm. within Irish physical culture debates in the early 1900s and there are distinctions between those who see physical culture as a nationalist tool so, you know building up these strong Irishmen and those who use physical culture to try and mimic British or English physical culturists. So there's a one particularly unfortunate Irish weightlifter, Michael Stokes, who in 1919 starts traveling over to London to take part in weightlifting competitions. And he publishes these wonderful articles in Health and Strength magazine, a British uh, physical culture magazine, talking about, you know, the strong brotherhood between Irishmen and Englishmen. And if Irishmen can, you know, learn from their English physical culturists, they can be strong just like them. He... He survives the Irish War of Independence, but he pretty much drops out rapidly from public life in the free state because he has associated himself so strongly with English physical culture at a time when people are starting to divorce the two. So there are these battlegrounds of physical culture, and there are some very poor unfortunates who choose the wrong side at the wrong moments. Some of those old sources, I mean, Sinn Féin you were talking about, it's just a... It's just a pleasure to read, isn't it? It's kind of so um, the language is so vivid in that in in uh, in the journalism in there, 
and kind of was it um, was it Kuzak was the uh, the editor of Sinn Fein at that time. Um, so I think the the Sinn Fein magazines I was reading was kind of past Kuzak's time in Irish public life. Ah. But I mean, he's one of the major um, kind of you know figureheads for this idea of strong Irishmen. Mm. Um, you know, distinguished from uh, effeminate Englishmen. So, I mean, I, I just opened up Sinn Féin newspaper. Uh, some of the quotes are fantastic. It's, you know, the English engage in dull, monotonous, slow, sl- slow, soul-slaying drill while the Irish are engaged in rigorous sport and physical culture. Shall we define ourselves by sheer strength and racial superiority? The Irish physique has deteriorated, but now is the time to reinvigorate it and become a strong nation once again. Like, really wonderful. Yeah. jingoistic statements that we really need again in Irish newspapers, I think. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you've also been, uh, it's, it's interesting given the kind of the connection that nationalists made between physical culture and, you know, the, the rejuvenation of the Irish nation, I suppose. But also the fact that um, physical education within schools was relatively neglected is something that you've been writing about um, in another article. Um, can you tell us some more about about that? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I actually was really lucky to be working with Connor Curran, who's previously uh, been interviewed on this podcast because he's writing a book at the moment on physical education in Ireland, which means I really need to hurry up about trying to convert my dissertation uh, into a book to try and pip him at the post. But what's interesting about physical education in Ireland is it's always supported ideologically like people are always saying this is a great idea of course our kids should be fit and strong and healthy because that will make them better students it will prepare them for adulthood it will ensure that the race doesn't deteriorate like these messages really emerged in the 1890s and continue until 1970 when the free state finally starts to fund it properly um, but what happens is there's always a material dearth like they're always saying this is great when push comes to shove they will not fund physical education and there's really wonderful instances of this the first meeting of teachers in the irish free state in the early 1920s they say okay physical education is now part of the curriculum we are going to develop holistic boys and girls this is wonderful within five years they say well it's no longer practical to teach it because we just don't have the money and then a year after that they're wondering why physical education has completely stopped in irish schools so it's one of these things that like it looks great to you know, support it, but they really don't want to fund it. And that's a continuing theme across the 1900s, 1910s, 1920s, and 1930s. Like, it's interesting, in 1939, um, Ireland, so it's now gone from the Irish Free State to Ireland, commissions a report on physical education in the country. And they recommend creating a physical education college, funding for teachers, you know, more uh, facilities within schools. Those recommendations are put on a shelf repackaged in the 1970s as something new and unique and then kind of continue on from there and no one mentions the 1930s so there really is this fun like fantastic tension between this is wonderful and i'll be damned if i pay for any of this <laughs> and you've written a lot about the history of weightlifting as well and uh, both in Ireland and more generally um and was it was it your passion for weightlifting that that was the starting point for your kind of academic career <laughs> career wow thank you <laughs> um i i actually have no idea how i kind of stumbled into this career i always had an interest in going to the gym and um, for my sins i've competed in two natural bodybuilding shows so i obviously have an interest in it but i think 
what's interesting to me is that this is something that hasn't been studied in the Irish context and I'm not original enough to look at what other people have done and come up with a new take. I prefer to find something no one has done, so I can't really be wrong. So it's like, no one has done this, I can work on you know, this element. And also, it just ties in so wonderfully with Irish nationalism, Irish politics, social life, uh, gender in Ireland, religious devotion in Ireland. So my current kind of pivot into weightlifting is done within the context of kind of Irish independence and Irish nationalism. So I mentioned the poor unfortunate Michael Stokes, who chooses the wrong side during the Irish War of Independence. But you get really interesting instances of the IRA seeking out weightlifting coaches uh, or weightlifting trainers in the lead up to the Irish War of Independence because they want to build strong Irishmen, healthy Irishmen. So I think my current pivot into weightlifting is kind of driven by trying to find out how and why we are trying to, we, the Irish Republican Army, were trying to, you know, prepare for independence and what that looked like and how that impacted individual bodies. Yeah, and I read, but you also talk about weightlifting more generally in its more modern um, history. And I read an article that you wrote um, about the thousand pound bench press. (laughs) And it was just fascinating because it was complete, it was a subject I knew absolutely nothing about. And yet there were lots of um, parallels with other sports that I found really interesting. And especially this tension between uh, the use of technology and, and the kind of, um, some people looking at the use of technology as being um, immoral or cheating in some way. And it hadn't occurred to me that this this happened in weightlifting. And I was particularly kind of interested in the, the bench press shirt, which I'd never heard of, <laughs> and how this invention allowed people to suddenly start lifting enormous weights. Um, yeah, so I suppose my recent interest stems a lot from where I work. So I work in the H.J. Um, Lutcher Stark Center of Physical Culture and Sports Studies, which is the kind of Disneyland of weightlifting history. So it was created by Professor John and Terry Todd some years ago, and it is the world's largest repository of powerlifting, bodylifting, weightlifting, strongman stuff. So if you ever make it to Austin, there's a museum with you know 500 pound barbells made of stone and you know wooden barbells made you know where people could lift stones from a quarry put them in little baskets and lift them uh to improve their strength so i've kind of been surrounded by the weird paraphernalia of the strength world which kind of explains my recent uh interest yeah the bench press shirt is if not if people aren't familiar with it it's effectively a singlet that you put on that is exceedingly tight um, it goes all across the upper, uh, the upper arms and the chest. And the idea of it is that it creates so much tension that when you move your hands towards your chest, the tension of the shirt will help you spring your hands back out. So it is incredibly effective if people are doing a bench press. It is really strange. As, as we were talking beforehand, I've had to peel very large powerlifters in and out of these shirts when helping a competition. So it's a very strange thing. And it's something that, as you say, was very controversial in the sport of powerlifting from the kind of 1980s onwards, because people believed, you know, if you use equipment which improves how much weight you can lift without actually kind of building that up yourself, if you can't do it without the shirt, using the shirt is some form of cheating, became this really interesting kind of window into, um, I suppose, the politics of powerlifting or the politics of strength, because a lot of the strength sports that I look at have their origins in 
the music hall, the vaudeville theater, the circus. So they're always kind of tinged with a sense of showmanship. And now in powerlifting, where you get men in tight singlets that they can barely move in, there's a chemical race where they're taking vast amounts of anabolic steroids and they're lifting weights that no human should ever look at. Like, of course you want to study that because it's fascinating and it's weird and it's wonderful. Um, but yeah, the bench press shirt is definitely a strange one. It's not the strangest thing, though, um, that I've looked at. So in the 70s, people used to wrap bed sheets around themselves really tightly because the tension it would create when you were squatting down would help push you back up. Or they would cut a tennis ball in half and put it behind their knee because when you squat down, when you bend the knee, the elasticity of the tennis ball will help you bounce back up. So weightlifting and powerlifting is this wonderful insight into the depths of human creativity, but also like human ridiculousness. It's a really, really fascinating article, and I'll put I'll put a link to it on the uh, on the website as well. Because yeah, the, the tennis ball one was <laughs> that really sprang out of me as well. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but it's just uh, it's just like you say it's just such a fascinating world with big characters as well isn't it like so the guy is it Gene Richlack was the first to bench press a thousand pounds yeah um, which is a weight that's completely I can't work in, out like it's I can't comprehend how anyone would be that, yeah like it's completely <laughs> incomprehensible that someone yeah. would a want to do that but b be able to do that but yeah when I think of these individuals these huge powerlifters I always think of like, you know, British wrestling in like the 70s and the 80s. So whenever I look at these people, I just think of like, if Big Daddy, you know, and giant haystacks were more interested in lifting weights than like slapping each other in a Wembley stadium. That's kind of how I view powerlifting. It's kind of like British wrestling, but in a gym rather than in the, in the ring. And, and uh, sort of moving subjects, um, you've been on the board of the uh, BSSH now for a year or two, I think. Uh, coming up to a year now, yeah. Yeah, and how do you find uh, find working with the board when you're on the other side of the world? Because of course you're in you're in Austin. Um. So I actually I have to thank you and the board for being very accommodating. Two different time zones because obviously I'm six hours behind uh, London or behind uh, England, and I've yet to get up very early for a board meeting. So that's always really appreciated. Um, but yeah, no, it's been a really wonderful experience. So I'm the PhD and early career researcher representative. So it's a really great opportunity to kind of meet with people, um, you know, who are finishing the doctorates or uh, have finished their doctorates because there's such a huge amount of um, graduates who are coming out to the market every year. And it's great because the BSSH like actively targets them through funding opportunities, through conferencing opportunities. Um, and I suppose just through I hate using the word networking because I feel like someone from Glengarry Glen Ross, but you know, just ABC, um, but just to meet with other people because I know when I started my PhD, like the BSSH conferences were always incredibly welcoming um, in a way that I haven't experienced with any other conference because I suppose there is still that communal um, atmosphere to it where people will come over and chat to you. And I think being able to represent PhD early career researchers has been very worthwhile in that sense. Uh, yeah, we've got the conference coming up fairly soon, haven't we? I think I think the registration will be open soon. I should know this really, but um, <laughs> I've had a couple of uh, long days. <laughs> <laughs> so the registration is open. Uh, I only know that because I'm um, 
collating, you know, who's apply, who's going to look at what uh, conference or what panel. And I've yet to do so. So hopefully by the time Raf hears this, I will have sent her on the Excel sheet with uh, everyone who's registered. But yeah, I think registration is open. We've already gotten a really good response um, right. across the board from the keynote to the individual panels to the quiz night run by a certain uh, podcast host, which is yeah. not myself. You've got, to, you've got to write that. <laughs> <laughs> so I think it's actually it's shaping up to be quite a good conference. Um, and the response yeah. already has shown the popularity of it. Are you, are you giving a paper um, this year? No, I'm not actually, um, which is great because I get to kind of sit back in the wings. And yes, sounds like you're quite myself. busy. <laughs> so, yeah, maybe, uh, maybe, uh, not, uh, maybe yeah. focusing on organising it is, uh, is enough uh, last year. Yeah. Well, I got too cocky about how well I understand technology um, because I was like, yeah, I can do a registration form. And then, you know, Googling how to create registration forms on, uh, you know, Google Forms. So now I'm trying to put everything together. So I think, yeah, I'll let, I'll let the smart people do the presentations. I'll just fumble around in the background. Yeah, I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. And uh, the program should be up on the sportinghistory.org website um, soon. Details will be there if people want to look at what's going on with the conference um, and I think you're uh, quite good at handling the technology because you've been doing interviews as well for this podcast series I mean how, how did you find that is that something you've done before or was it something that you kind of just had a go at um, yeah so this is something you very kindly uh, invited me to kind of expand the remit to PhD students early career researchers um, as we've already talked about, I've nearly lost several of the interviews uh, <laughs> through my own uh, fault. But it's been a really great experience because it gives me a way of connecting with um, PhD students, early career researchers around the world. So I've done them with people in Ireland, Britain, but also within the United States. And I think it opens up a space because, like, as you know yourself, when you're doing your PhD, when you're a few years after the dissertation, like, it's very hard to get a sense that people care about what you're studying you don't really get a huge amount of time to actually talk about what you do outside of if anyone is like me you know a very nervous 20-minute conference where you're just trying not to really screw up and embarrass yourself in front of the experts in the field um, so I think people have really enjoyed it and I think there's been some really interesting work to come out of it and again because we've opened it up to both sides of the Atlantic I think it really opens up the remit of what um, the BSSH and sport and history look at so I mean Raja's um, podcast a couple of weeks ago on black basketball was really interesting and something that I had no idea about because obviously as an Irish person, basketball is just not a sport. Um, so yeah, no, it's been really rewarding. and I think it has definitely shown people who maybe aren't familiar with the BSSH that this is a really open and welcoming place for people early on the kind of the academic uh, pathway. Yeah, that's definitely something that I wanted to emphasise as well. And it's been great the interviews that you've been doing because we're hearing different voices from different communities. And uh, really, what I see my role as being is just being the editor, really. So if GSSH members want to produce or to make interviews with other sports historians, I'd be happy to edit them and publish them. You know, but, uh, that's uh, yeah, I'm very happy with the with the interviews that you've managed to get for us. Um, I always like to finish off by asking people what they've got in the pipeline. And you sent me, you sent me a list of what you're committed to do. And it's like, oh, my God, <laughs> that's terrifying. <laughs> um, yeah, so I was a little bit um, 
enthusiastic and optimistic. So I, I submitted my PhD um, last, oh, it's just over a year now. And just as I submitted, a load of call for papers went out. So at the moment, I have uh, four articles of varying quality going out. And then I'm desperately trying to turn my dissertation into a, a monograph. So a lot. I'm not sure the quality of it, but the quantity is, <laughs> is there. So yeah, we'll, we'll see. It's all, it'll all be Irish physical culture. And then one or two pieces on the weird and wonderful of powerlifting and weightlifting. So yeah. I'm kept busy at the very least. Well, that's great. I'll, um, I'll put a link to all of the pieces uh, that, that we've talked about today on the homepage for the podcast. And if you, the listeners, want more information on the BSSH and the conference, uh, do get in touch with us via the BSSH website, sportinghistory.org, or you can tweet us at the BSSH's account. Um, but for this week, that's all for this episode. Until next time, it's goodbye from both of us. Goodbye. Bye. <laughs> Thanks, Connor. Uh, that was really good.